Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. When Janis Joplin and the Full Tilt Boogie Band entered the studio in July of 1970, Janis's career was moving like a freight train, which, considering the means of conveyance on which they'd all just gone on tour, makes total sense. They'd all deboarded the Festival Express just a few weeks before walking into Sunset Sounds in Hollywood, and were ready to take over the world. The opening track on Pearl feels like a freight train, too. Clark Pearson's four-on-the-floor drums are met with Janice's scalding and scolding vocals almost immediately. Move On is the only song on Pearl written solely by Joplin, and it's one that tells you exactly how fed up she was. She was fed up with romance, and she was fed up with being yanked around. Its entry on songfacts.com includes it on a list of songs that bash men, which, if no one has made that Spotify playlist... I can, I can do it, if need be. But is, is that song, are her songs just about men? Or is she sick of being led on, period? Being led on by a, a really gross industry for women. Led on by a society that had failed to value her properly by bandmates and critics who maybe hadn't picked up everything she was putting down. Was she led on by the highs she chased to sidestep the lows that came with fame? The passage of time is the true enemy of storytelling. And unfortunately... Most of the people who walked into Sunset Sounds in the summer of 1970 have left this plane of existence. So I can't ask Janice about what it felt like to be the conductor on this freight train. But I can tell this story from underneath that train. Because from the time the needle drops on Pearl for the next 30 minutes and change... It truly feels 
Like she and her band hit us with one. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins. And in this season of The Opus, we're talking about Janis Joplin's second and final studio album, Pearl. All aboard! I never expected Carl Bernstein to be someone I would be quoting while having the job of hosting a music podcast. But before he started dabbling in investigative journalism at the Washington Post, he was assigned to review Janis Joplin's 1969 show at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland. He remarked on her performance, her stage presence, And the difference between the Janice that sang with Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Janice that sang with the Cosmic Blues Band, and this new Janice, this Janice with a new band, the Full Tilt Boogie Band. Bernstein wrote that she'd finally assembled a group of first-rate musicians with whom she's totally at ease and whose abilities complement the incredible range of her voice. And I think it's a a woman who had finally found her people, who finally had her band. I got to speak to one of Joplin's biographers, Holly George Warren. She was delightful. And her book, Janice, Her Life in Music, paints a portrait of someone whose talent was not always appreciated or matched by her collaborators, but was definitely matched by her work ethic. Janice was a real perfectionist when it came to the musicians that she worked with. And Big Brother was a great band for her to start off with um, and to really become Janice Joplin rock star. They were really like a family and they really supported her and gave her the room to kind of grow as a singer, you know, uh, in a rock band, because she had never even played with um, musicians on electric instruments up until she moved to San Francisco in 66 and joined them. So she was able to develop. And also she was able to develop as a front person, you know, her incredible performative style, which was, I mean, I interviewed so many people that could describe seeing Janis Joplin as if it had been the week before rather than, you know, 48, 49, 50 years ago. And that's why we're still able to talk about this album 50 years after its release and why we still want to talk about this album 50 years after Janis's death. The Festival Express. It's the kind of tour that just couldn't happen today. And not just because there's literally no one on tour today. They put Janis Joplin and the Full Tilt Boogie Band on the bill with the Grateful Dead 
the band, Buddy Guy, Mountain, Flying Burrito Brothers, and a few others, and they charted a train, like a train train, a Canadian National Railways train. It had 14 total cars. There were two engines, one dining car, five sleeper cars, two lounge cars, two flat cars, one baggage car, and a staff car. And I probably don't need to say it out loud, but that train journey between Canadian cities ultimately became a combination of nonstop booze-fueled jam sessions and parties where instruments weren't played. And because the whole world was watching this moving microcosm of San Francisco's music scene post-Woodstock, it was all filmed for a documentary. There's one scene with Rick Danko from the band, Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead, new writers of the Purple Sages, John Dawson and Janis Joplin, all playing together on the Express that honestly might as well be in Smell-O-Vision. But no matter the condition of the players throughout the tour, they had to make stops just to refill the alcohol on this train trip. Janice and her band came back from that tour tight. And they got to road test some of their new material. So they were more than ready for the recording sessions. They were more than ready for the next level. Here's Steve Huey. He's a journalist for the All Music Guide, and you might know him as Hollywood Steve in the legendary Channel 101 web series, Yacht Rock. With Pearl, there was a conscious effort to sort of tighten things up. It's a tighter, punchier, more song-oriented record than, than Cosmic Blues was. Mm -hmm. And it's really putting her vocals in the spotlight in a way that Big Brother didn't quite accomplish because it was part of an overall sound. But it's also not, it's not the stretching out kind of spotlight that Cosmic Blues was. This is kind of putting her up front, getting the horn section out of the way, um, getting the full tilt boogie band behind her as her official support unit. Like this was a band that she had, she took an active role in putting together for the first time behind her. It was a, a bunch of guys who'd played with Ronnie Hawkins, who was this Canadian rock star that's kind of, I guess, Canada's equivalent of Cliff Richard, that who he was in Britain. Mm -hmm. It's this sort of boot camp for rock and rollers who play with him for a while and they go on to bigger and better things so a lot of the times. And that was what the Full Tilt Boogie Band was. It's a bunch of guys who played with Ronnie Hawkins and then went on to become Janis Joplin's band. And they've got that grounding in American roots music. And so Janis, along with pianist Richard Bell, guitarist John Till, bassist Brad Campbell, drummer Clark Pearson, and Ken Pearson, no relation, on Hammond organ, they got down to the business of recording what was supposed to be the beginning of a new breakthrough chapter and Janice's career, a new beginning with a new band. She got what she wanted, and it was exciting. But there was no way of knowing that her career, that these recording sessions, and Janice's life would all end 
abruptly just a few months later. Now, we really can't talk about Janice at this point in time or about this album without also talking about her dying and about her contemporaries dying and dying young and so close together. Here's Holly George Warren. Well, people were so devastated when she suddenly died at age 27 on October 4th, 1970. She was on the cover of Rolling Stone and keeping in mind this was like two weeks after or so after Jimi Hendrix died. So mm-hmm. the rock audience was, they probably felt the way we feel right now with what's going on in our country, just horrified and shocked and speechless about loss and trying to f- come to, to grips with it. Um, I guess the only thing that gave them a feeling of hope was the fact that uh, this wonderful artist had left behind these recordings that by all accounts were going so well. So, um, so I think people just kind of craved this music. I mean, it's the same way that we've, you know, when we've lost other important artists, you know, suddenly like Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain, um, you know, we crave to still have them in our lives because their music means so much to us. So now it's a collective grief, a collective grief of losing an artist, of losing a bunch of artists, of losing a scene. People were afraid they were losing a a genre, that a movement was ending. And with all of that comes uh, a longing, a jonesing for, for new material. Is it because the public is happy to have more of them to enjoy knowing that their output is now finite are people looking for hidden clues or meanings in the lyrics is there this feeling that we've missed something and that maybe if we had just listened differently had paid more attention that we could have I don't know, done something? The desire for the album Pearl, mixed with the grief, caused a tornado of anticipation. Here's Steve Huey. I mean, that anticipation must have been just off the charts because she was... I mean, she, in, in, a, in a certain sense, her death came at a similar point as Otis Redding because she was just starting to come into her own as an artist and get wider exposure. And, um, I mean, Otis Redding was a little more established with R&B audiences, certainly, than Janis Joplin was with rock audiences. But, you know, um, she after Otis Redding, she became the second artist ever to have a posthumous number one single I mean, partly, I think partly because of all the publicity surrounding her death and how, 
you know, untimely it was and how tragic it was that this great artist was not going to get a chance to continue to develop and progress and just make more amazing work for, for people to enjoy and connect with. <sighs> Otis Redding. What wasn't there to love about Otis Redding? Especially on stage. He did everything right up there. He was one of Janice's idols. And honestly, one of mine too. But I wasn't lucky enough to be around at the same time as Otis Redding. But Janice was, and she took full advantage. She saw him play for the first time in 1966 at the Fillmore, where everything happened. And she continued to see him perform every chance she got. And she absorbed his charm. She took in his mastery of movement. And the ways that he, he just held the audience in the palm of his hand. And it didn't hurt that his backing band was like the MGs. I mean, come on. His performances changed her performances. Their posthumous hit records are just one of a lot of things they have in common. But it is the most unfortunate. Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay is a huge hit. But it's an incomplete composition. We get that now iconic whistle part at the end, instead of more vocals. Because Otis Redding died in a plane crash before he got a chance to lay them down. Pearls, Buried Alive in the Blues, which was written by Nick Gravenides, would remain an instrumental on the release. Because Janice died on the day she was supposed to record her vocals. It's still a great song, but I always wonder what it would have been like. What did she have planned? The signature track on Pearl is the Chris Christopherson penned Me and Bobby McGee. You might call it the opus within the opus. It's very meta. Here's Steve Huey. Another part of the reason why Janis Joplin was able to have her only number one hit after she died was that me and Bobby McGee is such a perfect fit for her whole persona, mm. like this kind of lost flower child, nomadic hippie hobo sort of existence that she was living. And that's so much what the song Me and Bobby McGee is about. Holly George Warren. Me and Bobby McGee, a lot of people don't realize, she actually started performing that back in 1969. She got turned on to that song by her good buddy Bobby Newworth. And she actually did that for the first time. She performed it in Nashville in 1969 in December. Um, no one had ever really, especially the rock audiences, hadn't heard of Chris Christopherson. But again, she fell in love with his songwriting. And she loved to tell people about, oh, my God, you know, you got to hear this guy. He's going to be really big. Trust me on this, you know. So uh, she was 
a real cheerleader for Chris Christopherson's work. As soon as she uh, learned Bobby, me and Bobby McGee, she learned Sunday Morning Coming Down. You know, she's choosing some songs where it's more subtlety um, is a, an approach that I think also really suited her at that point in time. Busted flat in Baton Rouge, waiting for a train, and I was feeling near as faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained. You know what makes me sad every time I think about it? And I don't get sad every time I think about Pearl or every time I listen to Pearl even. It's a snapshot of a time where people were doing things that they love to do in the way that they love to do it. But it makes me sad sometimes to think about how Chris Christopherson didn't get to hear Janice's version of his song until after she died. But it's kind of like how Dolly Parton feels about Whitney Houston and how Trent Reznor feels about Johnny Cash now. Christofferson knew very soon after hearing Janice's version and seeing how much people connected with it that that was her song now. And he was fine with it and proud of it. Now, all but two songs on the entirety of Pearl were written by other people. Some of the best songwriters of the mid-20th century contributed to this album. There are some heavy hitters here, y'all. I mean, we, we've got Chris Christopherson, who before then and after that did great things on guitar and with that voice and with his beautiful afro. Starsborn era Chris Christopherson? Sign me up. But Bert Burns was here, and he wrote Cry Baby with Jerry Ragavoy. But he also wrote Twist and Shout. That's one of those songs that just feels like it came out of nowhere. But no, people wrote that song. Bobby Womack. He wrote all those Bobby Womack songs. But he also wrote Trust Me. All of this talent, all of these different points of view, all on one album. Move Over and Mercedes-Benz were Joplin originals, but Janice was able to find her voice in other people's words and take ownership of every single song on this album. Give me time, give me time, mm, give me time. I heard somebody say Now, because Pearl was released months after Janice had died, music writers and critics had a little while to think about how they'd talk about this album when it was released. There was never a question that it would be, but how do you do that? 
Rolling Stone's Jack Shadowian wrote in 1971, it was February, just a month or so after Pearl came out, her last album can't simply be an occasion for evaluation. The fact that there will be no more studio albums inevitably outweighs the issue of how good or how bad the record might be. Fortunately, Pearl is a good record, and Janice is often magnificent. The voice cutoff was clearly in its prime. I suspect that some of the tracks are not in their final shape. But these are not scraps, and there is every indication that Janice was working towards a new maturity and confidence. Holly George Warren. I think she was able to create a very distinctive sound. I mean, when you hear Janis Joplin, you immediately recognize her voice. There's never any confusion about mm -hmm. who this person is uh, that's singing. And I think the fact that her sound has never really itself been, um, you know, replicated by other singers, even that what those who have been inspired by her, even people that have played her on, you know, the Broadway stage, et cetera, it just shows how she was such a combination of her own sound, but also her own influences all combined together. And Janice's influences all combined together in the mind of an artsy girl from Port Arthur, Texas. Otis Redding and Bessie Smith and Big Mama Thornton and Odetta. Pieces from here, pieces from there. A little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. They all formed a singular talent taken too soon in Janis Joplin. In this season of The Opus, we'll find out more about that girl. How she ended up in California at the height of the counterculture. The impact that scene had on her and the impact she had on the scene and in the movement, in the movements, in feminism, in beauty, in strength. We'll also look deeper into the time surrounding her death and the legacy she left behind. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. I'll see you next time. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing four dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game.
Hello again, I'm Adam Onz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it made some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Roberts, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.